Hear now the word of God again from Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Pray with me, please. Our Father, your word is truth. Sanctify us by that truth. Give us help in the hearing and preaching of your word. Help me, O God, to honor you. Help us, Lord, to hear and believe and be saved by your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Previously in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we saw that all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now we see here in verses 29 and 30 why that must be so. Very simply, God's purpose, that is to say his eternal plan, is to glorify his people. Therefore, God designs and directs all things to that purpose. Now, verses 29 and 30 actually form a lengthy syllogism, an argument called a sorites. A sorites is a chain argument, a long argument, a syllogism in which the predicate of each proposition, Joy Appleton, the predicate of each proposition becomes the subject of the next one. And then there's a series of these propositions in which the predicate of the previous line becomes the subject of the new line. And then in the conclusion, the subject of the first premise becomes the predicate, or excuse me, the subject of the conclusion. So let me try to summarize it for you. All whom God foreknew are those whom God predestined. All whom God predestined are those whom God called. All whom God called are those whom God justified. All those whom God justified are those whom God glorified. Here comes the conclusion. Therefore, all whom God foreknew are those whom God glorified. So it's a chain syllogism. Sometimes this is called the golden chain of redemption or the golden chain of salvation. And the reason is because it is a chain argument that lays out the causes and order of our salvation. We will take a look at each of these things. I want you to see that in each proposition, each link of the chain, as it were, follows by necessity from the previous one. So, for instance, all whom God foreknew... He also predestined. And then when he says all whom God predestined are those whom he called, we can connect those whom God called with those whom God foreknew. And that's the case for each step in this argument, all the way through to the conclusion. The conclusion, as we said, is all whom God foreknew are those whom God has glorified. Now I want us to look for the rest of our time together at the individual terms in this golden chain. As I said, they are the causes 
in order of our salvation. So there's foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. Certainly you can deduce that there are other steps in our salvation that are not mentioned here. But for the apostle's purpose, he lays out the major ones beginning in the secret counsel of God working out to the end of our salvation. The first one, foreknew. Those whom he foreknew, the object of this verb, foreknew, is the personal pronoun whom. What did God foreknow? Not things, not ideas, not events, but people. The objects of this knowledge are men. Indeed, not their deeds, not their goodness or their character or their righteousness, not even their faith, but rather men themselves. God's foreknowledge in this verse speaks of a personal knowledge of individual men and women. This term that is translated here as foreknew comes from the verb progenosco. This is a compound word. means to know beforehand. Just like our English word foreknew. I want to show you how this word is used a couple of times in the scriptures and it will help you to get a better understanding of it. In chapter 11 of this very same book, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the elect in Israel, says this, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Same word. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, says this, Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That word that is in that place translated as foreordained is our word foreknew. Now the one that was foreordaining in Peter's example is God. God foreknew Jesus as the Savior before the foundation of the world. Peter uses also the noun form of this verb in chapter 1. He says, Jesus... Excuse me, he says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. He's talking about Jesus being handed over to wicked men, right? And he says that was according to God's determined purpose and foreknowledge. Likewise, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says that Christians, the elect, are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. All right, well, I won't keep multiplying examples, but what I want you to see is how that word is used in Scripture. It is used not merely of knowledge of facts or possible facts. It is used particularly of some kind of relationship between God and people. Now, the subject in this verse is God. He is the one that knows. In the Bible, when it speaks of God knowing people, it refers usually to his choosing of them, his loving them, his regarding, approving, or even delighting in them. Let me show you what I mean. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, Jesus says that he will tell the wicked, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus tells them he never knew them. Now, is he telling them he was unaware of them? That the thought of them had never entered into his mind? That he, he just now is meeting them for the first time? Well, he's their creator. He knows them in that sense, obviously. In fact, he says that they are workers of lawlessness, so he knows that about them. What he is saying is, he does not find delight in them. He does not acknowledge them or approve them because they are workers of lawlessness. Remember uh, Abraham, whom God chose and called out of his home country and brought him to the promised land. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, the Lord says this about Abraham. I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. I want you to notice two things. One is is that God's knowledge of Abraham preceded his dealings with Abraham. And the second thing, God's knowledge of Abraham speaks of a relational knowledge. God approved of, God found delight in, God loved Abraham. God chose Abraham. This is said of the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 2. God looked upon the children of Israel and he acknowledged them. The word acknowledged means no. He knew them. God looked down at them and saw the apple of his eye, his own chosen. In Psalm 1, verse 6, we know that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. One more. Jeremiah 1, 5. The Lord says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born... I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Do you see God's knowledge of the prophet Jeremiah speaks of God's approval, his delight in him, his setting his love upon him. As I read that passage, I think back to when my children were in their mother's womb. And I would talk to them, I would sing to them, I would play with them, like shake my wife's belly. We had a game we called Earthquake. (laughs) But there was a sense in which I knew them, right? I had thoughts about them. I delighted in them. I loved them. But I want you to think that if I, a sinful and fallible and weak man, can know someone that way in the womb... How much more the Lord who says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God knew you before you were you. It's because his knowledge is his choosing you. His knowledge is setting his love upon you. Now, because this is the first link in our chain, everything else depends upon it, doesn't it? It's important to ask ourselves, so much depends upon God knowing me, which is to say God choosing me, how do I know if I am known by God? 
The Apostle Paul answers this for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Do you see, we, we can trace a river upstream to its source. And we know God's knowledge of us by finding his love for us in ourselves. And we trace that upstream to the source of God. We love God because he first loved us. If we love God, we are known by him. You see, God's knowing us explains our love for him. He set his love upon us. Therefore, we came to love him. The second link in the chain, the second word is predestined. Whom he knew, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, that is his son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now the word predestined, as you might be able to guess, means to decide on beforehand. The former term, foreknew, refers to God's choosing, his setting his love upon someone, his election of people. This term refers to the result or the destination, if you will, of that choice. This word is used several times in Scripture. I'm going to give you just a few examples. Herod, uh, this is in Acts chapter 4, verse 28. Herod and Pontius, this is the apostles praying. Then they say, Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. The word determined before is our word predestined. Do you see that? That Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, everyone gathered together to do what God's hand and purpose had predestined beforehand. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the gospel is the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. The word ordained is our predestined. The gospel was determined by God ahead of time. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, we know that God predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. And this is important. According to the good pleasure of his will. On what basis did God predestine us to become adopted as sons? The good pleasure of his will, which is to say his foreknowledge, his approving of, delighting in, loving, choosing. One more, Ephesians 1:11. We are predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We should relate this to what we've read in Romans. We know that God works all things for our good because we are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And as Ephesians says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, to what are those that are foreknown, to what are they predestined? We find that in the rest of verse 29. They are predestined 
to be conformed. So in other words, their destiny is set ahead of time. To do what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Think back to the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 1. And man was made in the image of God. Of course, the fall of man, man's sin, corrupted that image. But we know from the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the image of God. So then, men being conformed to the image of the Son of God, man is being remade, renewed, restored to the image of God. Jesus Christ, we know, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. You see, conformity to the image of Jesus Christ is conformity to the image of God, which was man's original end, to be in the image of God. That was man made by God originally and good. Now there's a purpose in this. See the purpose here. Why, Why is God conforming his foreknown and predestined people to the image of his son? That he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus being called the firstborn speaks of his preeminence. He is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, Jesus, might have preeminence. Colossians 1.18. You see, the, the design of God in conforming you to the image of his Son is twofold. One, that Jesus may be the firstborn among many. And two, that you may be in those many. When the firstborn, who is God's son, comes again into the world, God will say, let all the angels of God worship him. He will bring with him a train of his children, as it were, In the book of Hebrews, we have a dialogue between the son and the father. And the son says to the father, here I am and the children you gave me. Christ is the exemplar, the pattern for all of God's children. And this is a hint of things to come, but... He is the example both in his suffering and in his glory. Christian, do you want to know what your life ought to look like? Look no further than the firstborn among many brothers. He first suffered and then he was glorified. Notice that we ourselves are exalted in Christ's exaltation. And Christ, in turn, is exalted in our exaltation, right? So Jesus Christ being ascended to heaven and being crowned above everything else exalts us. He gives us some of that glory. Remember, he prayed that in John 17 for us to have the glory that the Father has given to him. But then when he, gives, when he exalts us, that's also an exaltation of him because it makes him preeminent. All of us will look up to him. It's a little bit like Joseph saving his brothers. Remember when Joseph first made his brothers upset, it was because he told them they would bow down to him. 
It's interesting, too, because in order to be saved, Joseph's brothers had to join him in Egypt after God had exalted him. And so it will be for us. We will have to join, right? We, had to, we have to go to Christ in the grave and be raised up from the dead with him and join him in heaven. We have to go where he is. And Jesus asked for that in John 17, didn't he? I pray they may be where I am. We must be dead with him and buried with him, raised with him. And you know, because of this, we should not be ashamed to suffer for his sake. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers. Neither should we be ashamed to own his name and even suffer for him if need be. Now this being conformed to the image of Christ is both future and present, right? It's begun. You are right now being conformed to his image. It's started. And this conformed to his image includes both humiliation and exaltation, just as we saw with the pattern of Jesus Christ. So these afflictions, these sufferings, these are your temporary Afflictions, these are your humiliation. But on the other side of humiliation is exaltation. This is what God did with Christ, and that's what he promises to do with all of Christ's brothers. How can you be sure that you are predestined, right? You can't see predestination. This happened before the creation of the world. This happened before you were formed. You weren't there to see it. I wasn't there to see it. God doesn't put little stamps on the back of our feet so that we can tell. How can you know that you have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son? The apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 3 verses 9 and 10. He says, you have put off the old man with his deeds. And you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. In other words, if you are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, it's because you were predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The way to be assured that you've been predestined is to ask whether there is conformity in you to the Son of God. As we've emphasized before, This is not perfect conformity, but there is in you a putting off of the old man and a putting on of the new man and being changed progressively into the image of your Savior. The third term is called, and we talked recently about the external and the internal call. The external call is the preaching of the word of God, using of external things. And then there's the internal call, which we also call the effectual call. And that is God using his word and God the Holy Spirit working powerfully inside of you to hear it, to believe it, to obey it. And the call being spoken of here in this passage is that internal effectual call. This is something like Paul in Acts chapter 9 when the Lord Jesus knocked him off his horse and he blinded him. And, and Paul, being called Saul at that time, said, uh, remember the Lord Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul said, 
Who are you, Lord? I think Paul was pretty effectually called at that point. The Lord got his attention. This is like the people in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, who when they heard the preaching of the apostles, they were cut to the heart. Or as the King James says, cut to the quick. And they cried out, what shall we do to be saved? You see, that's what effectual calling is. It's not just the words on the outside. It's the words stamped on your heart. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, Pisidia. And they're preaching. And we read this in verse 48. When the Gentiles heard these words, they were glad. And glorified the word of the Lord, and as many were ordained to eternal life, believed. Two things to notice. One, here's an example of an effectual call. They believed. The Spirit worked faith in their hearts so that they received the preaching of the gospel as life. The second thing is, did you notice what preceded their believing? As many as were ordained, predestined, to eternal life believed. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Now calling, unlike the other elements of this chain, takes place in time, doesn't it? God's foreknowledge is in eternity. You don't witness it. God's predestining was back in eternity. But calling, the effectual call, actually takes place in time. And you personally experience it. And the response is simply repentance and faith. Right? You believe the word and you want to be saved by it. You, you, you are aware of your sins. And you're aware that Christ is a savior. And you want him to save you. Perhaps you've heard of a... A difference between people called Calvinists and Arminians. It had to come up at some point, right? But herein is the difference between Calvinists and Arminians. It's really very simple. You see, Arminians, those who go by that label, rightly insist that a man must respond to the gospel. He must believe. He must choose God. Calvinists agree wholeheartedly with this. No man will be saved if he does not believe. No man will be saved if he does not choose for himself this day whom he will serve. Man needs to choose God. We agree with all of that. We simply note this. That before we ever responded to God, God had already foreknown us had already predestined us, and had already called us. Do you see? So, so in the effectual call, the human response, the, the response that you have is faith and all the appropriate things that go along with it. But before you did that, God already foreknew you, predestined you, and called you. You remember Lazarus lying dead in the tomb? And Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus obeyed, didn't he? He obeyed the Lord and did what he said. But what was Lazarus doing the moment before that? Stinking, rotting, 
He was dead. You see, the Lord had to work to make Lazarus alive in order for him to come out. And Lazarus couldn't do that for himself. And so that's a very good illustration of this effectual call. It's important that you've been effectually called because without the effectual call, you would be like Lazarus, still in the tomb. How do you know that? Well, we know it by its effects. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as he's offered to you in the gospel? Do you turn from your sins towards God with hope in the mercy of God in Jesus Christ? That's repentance. Do you have faith and repentance? Do you hear and believe the word of God? Does it come to you not just words, but words of life for the saving of your soul? If yes, then you have been effectually called. Now, ordinarily, the effectual call comes along with the external call, right? The preaching of the word. They go together. But here's the thing. God can call a man at any point that he wants to. John the baptizer was effectually called when he was yet in the womb of his mother. And I pray for the children, the little ones in our church, that they will be effectually called as soon as before they're even born, so that when they come of age and they hear the word, that word is combined and they are able to respond with faith. Our next term is justification. Justification, as you recall, was the subject of the first five chapters of the book of Romans. You see, those whom God effectually calls now have faith. And faith is that grace, that instrument by which a sinner can be united to Jesus Christ and receive all of his benefits. And in justification, God forgives all of your sins. And he counts you as righteous. On the basis of Christ's righteousness. You receive Christ's righteousness to you, to your account, imputed Imputed, rather, and all you did was believed. That's justification. David describes the blessedness of the man to whom Christ, to, excuse me, to whom God imputes righteousness. He says this Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. You see, those who are justified are absolved from the guilt. They're accepted as righteous in the sight of God. No sin that they've ever been guilty of shall come against them to condemn them. In the day of judgment, there will be no condemnation. The debt is released. The penalty's paid. The verdict has been delivered. Justified persons are no longer dealt with as enemies or as criminals. Justified persons are now treated as God's friends, people of whom he approves. Now, justification, like effectual calling, also takes place in time, doesn't it? But it's a legal declaration. I'll tell you, can you see my perfect righteousness, beloved? You cannot. 
I cannot see yours either. It's a legal declaration. It's a judicial declaration by God. It's not visible to us. You can't see it. How then can you know you are justified? Romans 4.3 says this. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness. A couple of verses further in Romans 4, 5. We read, the one who believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Romans 4, 24 and 25 says this. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Do you believe that? If yes, then you are justified. Your sins are forgiven and you are counted righteous in the sight of God, never to be condemned. The fifth and final link, glorified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word glorify in the Bible is most often used of man's responsibility towards God, isn't it? God is glorified when we praise him, when we honor him, when we magnify his name, when we obey him, etc. But here, in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, it says that God glorifies us. This means that God clothes us with splendor. And exalts us to the highest perfection to which we can attain. We saw above in verse 29 that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And that's really what glorification is. Full conformity to the image of God's Son. The very thing for which or to which we are predestined. Do you see why it is that we can be certain we'll be glorified? Is because that's the destination that God set for us. Now you may have noticed as we were working through here, we talked about foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification. And now we've gone on to glorification, which is the end of this whole thing. Wasn't there anything about sanctification? Well, we go back for a moment to verse 29 and we see this Being conformed to the image of his son includes sanctification. In fact, you shouldn't think of glorification and sanctification as opposed or separate. They differ in degree, not kind. You see, glorification, being fully like Jesus, is simply the completion of that work of confirmation that God is doing right now. So there is your sanctification. As 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we are transformed from glory to glory. And that final glory will be the completion of it. Matthew Henry says, From one degree of glorious grace unto another, till grace here be consummated in glory forever. He's talking about sanctification culminating in glorification Now, it's interesting, you probably noticed this, that the glory spoken of here is in the past tense. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of these activities use past tense verbs. But we learned back in chapter 5, 
and back in verses 18 through 25 of chapter 8, that the glory that we expect is actually yet future, right? It's hope. We hope for this glory. And who hopes for what he sees? So we know then that glory is yet future for us. I don't know about you, but I am not yet fully conformed to the image of my Savior. But yet it is spoken of in the past tense. How so? Well, there are three ways. Number one, with respect to the decrees of God. Think about this. This is being determined at the same time, as it were, or in the same connection as when God foreknew and predestined. Okay, so with respect to the will of God, with respect to God's decrees, it's accomplished. It's set. They took place at the same time. Your glorification has already been determined by God. He foreknew it. He predestined it. And now he has called you to it and justified you and will bring it to pass. There's a second way that this is already true for you. It's true with respect to Jesus Christ, who is already glorified. He has ascended to heaven, and he has been seated at the right hand of the Father. And guess what? He is your head. He is the firstborn to whom you will be conformed. Think of it this way. Suppose I came home from work tomorrow afternoon and I said to my wife, Honey, I won the lottery. I'm rich. And she would say, Correction, we're rich. (laughs) And then she might say, What are you doing playing the lottery? But the point I want to make is that she would understand that if I become rich, she becomes rich. So, too, with Jesus Christ. His riches are ours. There's a third way that this is spoken of in the present tense, or this past tense, even though it is yet to come, and that's this. With respect to its certainty of coming to pass. You see, this goes all the way back. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. You see, God will bring to... Consider all that would have to be denied in order for God to not glorify you. Work your way back through it. He would have to take back his justification, which means he sent his son to no purpose. He would have to take back his effectual calling, which means the Spirit's work is undone. He would have to take back his predestination, which means his plan is unwound. He would have to take back his foreknowledge, which means his will would not be accomplished. Do you see all of those things? You know, we we talk about all things working together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. And we saw even afflictions serve your good. But look at here, these good things that work together for your good. God's will, God's planning, God's power, God's spirit, God's son, All of these things that God does make it certain that he will glorify you. So we've seen here the golden chain of salvation as it is called. But I don't want us to forget the context in which we find this golden chain. You see, these precious promises in this chapter are actually meant to preserve our hope. Our hope in the midst of afflictions. That's what started this whole conversation In chapter 8. You see our present sufferings. Bring the future glory. 
But you know, we have to be prepared for that glory. Think again about Joseph. He went from the pit and the the prison, rather, up to the palace, right? But do you know, it, it took time before Joseph was exalted as second in, in all of Egypt. And it was actually Joseph's suffering that prepared him for that. And, and in a sense, beloved, God is taking us from, from prison or from a pit and is putting us on a throne. What do you think, if you, if you went to any prison in the country and just released a criminal from prison and put him on a throne. How do you think that would go? Would he be prepared for the weight of that glory? You see, God is now in your difficulties, in your sufferings actually, preparing you for the weight of that glory. So God is moving you to glory, but not without afflictions. But remember that the present afflictions will not even be worth comparing to that future glory. Let us pray. Sovereign Lord, you have declared all things, the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning. You have all power. We trust you. You have every right to do things as you please. We are but dust, and yet you have set your affection upon us, even sending your Son for us, O God, we could truly spend an eternity praising you and never exhaust the debt that we owe to you. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you in Christ's holy name. Amen.